0: How does the arrival of life in all its forms advise us about the current dilemma regarding fossil fuel energy? What were the unique characteristics of Homo sapiens that allowed it to out all other hominid species? How did the 200-year fossil fuel explosion dramatically benefit human survival and might ultimately cost it in the end? Why are the problems with peak oil and gas not as prominent as it seemed 15 years ago? Can we ever release ourselves from addiction to fossil fuels and to power of all kinds? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we spend most of the hour speaking to a popular author and educator on world energy issues. His name is Richard Heinberg, and he will be speaking about a new book he has just written, arguing the characteristics which allowed humans to overcome natural limits over millennia are colliding with the same characteristics that may doom the environment that sustains us all. On this week's program, Power, Limits and Prospects for Human Survival, a conversation with Richard Heinberg. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of October 22, 2021. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Innu, Ojibwe, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Beti Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across. Canada and the United States, and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News Site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. For the vast, vast majority of people, the rules are very simple. To travel, you've got to be vaccinated, Trudeau said when he announced better days ahead for Canadians. The phrase that something has got to be done says the most about the PM, the Liberals, democracy, and human rights in this country. It is also unclear what the vast majority of people means as he had narrowly won the election race. Specifically in 2021, the PM received the lowest percentage of votes at the national level in the history of Canada in terms of the number of voters for the ruling party. In short, Canadians are forced to receive only the modern and insufficiently tested messenger RNA or mRNA vaccines by October 30th, 2021, That comes from the article, The Noose is Tightening, the Clock is Ticking, Justin Trudeau's COVID Mandate Against Canadians, Both Unvaccinated and Vaccinated, by Marina uh, Bulacovic, posted October 20th. (music) The destruction of Libya is one of the many crimes of Western colonialism that has undermined the confidence of Western intellectuals in Western civilization. It is crimes such as the murder of Libya that have resulted in the destruction or removal of statues and monuments and the teaching now institutionalized in schools that white people are racist. When you think of the destruction of Vietnam, Iraq, Libya and Palestine and the attempted destruction of Syria and Iran, just to mention some of the atrocities of our current era, It is possible to comprehend why the West has lost its moral gloss and is increasingly despised by growing numbers of its own citizens in addition to Arabs, Africans, Latin Americans, Russians, and Asians. Corrupt and evil Western leaders have succeeded in marginalizing the West. Every Western country now consists of refugees from countries that the West has destroyed and citizens who have lost confidence in their leaders and culture. That comes from the article, The Killing of Gaddafi Ten Years Ago Has Resulted in the Death of the Nation of Libya and the Destruction of Its People by Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, posted October 20th, originally published on the author's blog site, PCR Institute for Political Economy. Today, the Biden-Harris regime is attempting to inject harmful, ineffective, and often lethal genetic modification agents, or vaccines, into every man, woman, and child in America. These so-called vaccines have already killed, disabled, and severely injured millions of people in the U.S. and around the world, according to the government's official statistics. Unvaccinated, sensible people who refuse this grotesque experimental treatment are demonized, vilified, and falsely accused of spreading illness. Backed by the prostitute news media, big tech censorship, and wholly corrupt government health agencies which are fronts for big pharma, the U.S. government's ultimate goal is to remove the unvaxxed from society, get them fired from their jobs, make them unable to go shopping or travel and isolate them in FEMA-style concentration camps which have already been built. Distributing truth-telling leaflets, as do members of the White Rose UK, is one way to fight this insanity. That comes from the article End the COVID Fraud and Global Genocide Now by Walter Gellis and The White Rose UK, posted October 20th, originally published on State of the Nation. When government threatens to take away an individual's right to employment, education, health care, and the ability to enter a store to buy food, enter a hospital, or travel on public transportation, there is no other word for it but tyranny. This virus, which has a 99% survival rate, and this leaky vaccine, which fails to reliably prevent infection and transmission in the fully vaccinated, has racked up a record-breaking more than half a million vaccine-adverse event reports in the U.S. alone. It will not be the last virus and vaccine to be weaponized against the people in the name of the greater good. That is because forced vaccination is the tip of the spear In a culture war that has been going on for much longer than the 40 years that I have been a vaccine safety and human rights activist, publicly warning that this day would come. It is a war that will cause more suffering until enough of us refuse to be siloed and instead join together to change dangerous laws that abuse the trust and goodwill of the people. That comes from the article, Forced Vaccination Was Always the End Game, America's Move Towards Authoritarianism, by Barbara Lowe fisher posted October 20th, originally published at National Vaccine Information Center. On October 7th, the death toll after vaccination in Taiwan reached 852, while the death toll after the COVID-19 was diagnosed largely based on the flawed PCR test, was 844. The number of deaths after vaccination exceeded the number of confirmed deaths for the first time. According to a Notice of Adverse Events After COVID-19 Vaccination, issued by Taiwan's Health Department on March 22nd this year, Taiwan began vaccination. From that day to October 6th, the death toll after vaccination in Taiwan has reached 849. Among them, the death toll after vaccination with AZ was the largest, reaching 643. The death toll after vaccination with Moderna was 183. And the death toll after vaccination with Taiwan's self-produced Medigen vaccine was 22 That comes from the article, Taiwan deaths from COVID-19 vaccination exceed deaths from COVID-19, posted October 20th, originally published on Medical Trend. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click donate on the menu bar. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour. My name is Michael Welch. Our global plight involving climate change and resource depletion are ultimately tied in in one distinct feature. They're both related to our ability to generate power. Uh, This is not something that technicians and and political entities spend much time talking about, uh, thinking about, but with a a new book, Power, Limits and Prospects for Human Survival, the issue is explored in, in almost 400 pages, taking us back to the birth of life on the planet and and continuing to the present uh, use uh, and abuse of foreign fossil fuels. The book was written by Richard Heinberg. He is a senior fellow in residence of the Post Carbon Institute and is regarded as one of the world's foremost advocates for a shift away from our current reliance on fossil fuels. He's the author of 14 books, including some of the seminal works on the society's uh, current energy and environmental sustainability crisis. Richard has authored hundreds of essays and articles that have appeared in such journals as The Nature, Reuters, Wall Street Journal, The American Prospect, among others, and uh, Richard has d- delivered hundreds of lectures and, on energy and climate issues to audiences on six continents, addressing policymakers at the many levels, from local city councils to members of the European Parliament. And Richard has delivered hundreds of lectures on, on energy and, and climate issues to audiences, um, to policymakers at many levels. Uh, from And he also joins us now to speak about his new book. Richard Heinberg, welcome back to the Global Research News Hours. Good to have you again.
1: Well, thank you, Michael. It's good to be talking to you again.
0: Yeah. Now, this book, it's unique in terms of looking at the current issues of a fossil fuel-dominant society through the lens of energy in both its physical and its social forms. So you spent a good volume of the book tracing our evolution from the eromasia and mitochondria at the microscopic level through our arrival as a species and the various instruments that allowed us to evolve and survive. After writing on the topic of energy depletion for almost two decades, what unique and constructive insights did you glean from the process of the wide-ranging approach applied in this book?
1: Right. Well, um, the, the book is, um, is, is about power in uh, all senses of the word. Um, and, of course, first and foremost, power is defined as the rate of energy transfer, And so the book is about energy, but it's about more than that, because we use energy not only for, uh, you know, to do physical work that's, you know, obviously, you know, carrying heavy objects and digging minerals out of the ground and things like that. But we also use energy in more subtle ways that give us social power. We use energy energy by talking <laughs> and, and language enables us to uh, organize and motivate all kinds of of other energy usage so there's there's social power the ability to influence other people. Now some languages use different words to describe physical power and social power. German and French for example have different words for these two. Uh, categories of power, if you will. But English has this one ambiguous word power that describes both and I decided to play on that um, uh, whether it's an ambiguity or whatever it is, linguistic feature to to bring together a lot of phenomena to help us understand the the human predicament here at, in the 21st century I was I was trying to address three basic questions. First, how has one species among millions become so powerful as to threaten the survival, not only of our species, but of, of millions of others? I mean, this is something that hasn't happened uh, in many millions of years. Uh, and it's, it's, it, you know, it deserves an explanation. <laughs> and second question, how is it that some people have come to oppress so many others? Um, you know, social inequality has been with us for hundreds, thousands of years, but we, we, we're constantly taking it to new levels. We're finding new ways to uh, exploit one another in, in ever, <laughs> you know, m- more imaginative fashion And then third, is there something we can learn about power? Is there some way we can change our relationship with with physical and social power so as to get us through the rest of the century? Because if we don't, then, um, you know, I I titled the the book very deliberately, uh, Prospects for Human Survival. I think that there is a, a strong possibility, if not a likelihood, that our species will not survive this century. And that's, that that, I'm not alone in that. There was a a poll taken of some 10,000 young people, millennials, uh, just a few weeks ago in, I think, 10 countries. And uh, more than half believe that our species is doomed. Now that's extraordinary. You know, um why, why is that perception out there? Well, I I don't think it's a it, it's a a false perception. I think the, the the reality is that we may be doomed. So if that's the case, you know, let's get busy trying to understand the situation. and that's that's what motivated the book.
0: Okay, um I, I'm curious because this scope, I mean, you had to go through a, A wide range, I mean, probably even deeper. You know, you have all sorts of uh, insights. uh, You know, all sorts. I mean, going right back through history and so on. Um, I'm, I'm wondering that over the course of researching it, did your thinking about human evolution change as a result of going through that?
1: Oh yeah, you know, um, there's so many subject areas touched on in the book as you say, everything from um, cell biology to uh, <clears throat> weapons uh, nuclear weapons uh, negotiations um, and I have a lot of you know I have a wide ranging interest in a lot of things but uh, I realized starting out that uh, that my knowledge in some of these areas was either limited or stale, and so that as I was researching the book, and this was over a period of several years i um, I deliberately sought out the the latest research in these fields. I bought scores of books and and read them, and you can see you know stacks of them sitting behind me and um <clears throat> also, the, the the latest research papers that that were germane to all of these fields, uh, and it was an intellectual journey like I've never had before. Um, I you know I enjoy learning new things, so this was like being the proverbial kid in the candy store, um, being able to update myself on on all of these areas related. To power, the social psychology of power. I mean, there's been a a tremendous amount learned just in the last 10 years about, you know, what power, social power does to people, how it undermines their personality and, uh, reduces their feelings of empathy for other people and so on. These things have been studied with, um, uh, surveys and experiments and, and so on. So we, we know so much more, but, uh, you know, nobody has really brought all of this together in quite the same way. And I think doing so really gives a lot of new perspective on uh, just where we are as a species right now. I mean, this century, the 21st century is the make or break uh, century for our species. We're right in the middle of it and, uh, and there's no turning away.
0: Yeah, and I also note that uh, when you write, it, it's very easy to understand. You know, you, you don't have to have advanced degrees, and anything. anybody with a grade 8 education or so can uh, can <laughs> follow it. Um, Good. Now, when you mentioned near the beginning, you talk about the aeromycia and the mitochondria. Uh, you mentioned that in Chapter 1, and, and they allowed, basically they came along and allowed more complexity in life than anything we'd uh, had up to that point. How does this tie in with the principles, the larger principles that you're trying to develop throughout the book?
1: Right. Well, you know, um, my education in cell biology from, you know, two or three decades ago was mostly had to do with um, uh, biochemistry, you know, because that's what was, that's where all the, the, the juicy stuff was, was located in, in those days, you know, this discovery of DNA and RNA and all the chemical messengers going back and forth within the, the cell. But um, over the last, again, over the last 10 years or so, there has been a shift in emphasis in research where now there's more study going into how cells use energy. And this was really interesting to me because I've been writing about energy for all these years. And of course, energy is what enables anything to happen. And um, and so you know, looking for the energetic basis of life itself. Wow, this is, this is really juicy. This is, this is interesting. And a factoid that I came across in, in reading about this, it was actually in a book called Power, Sex, and, and Suicide by a biologist named Nick Lane. He points out that uh, life is incredibly powerful, just from an energetic standpoint, that a typical cell is about 10,000 times as powerful as the sun. And that sounds crazy if you, you know, on on its face, but you start dividing out, you know, the sun is incredibly massive. So you divide luminosity by mass and you do the same thing with the cell, maybe not luminosity, but energy uh, transfer rate by, by its mass. And, you know, math works out that, you and I use an incredible amount of energy relative to our mass. Um, and how is that? Well, life has gotten really good at gathering and using energy. Of course, the sun generates its own energy, whereas living things are, are borrowing that energy from the sun and using it. Nevertheless, we're, we've gotten incredibly good at that. And of course, human beings not only have gotten good at using direct uh, energy capture from from the sun in, in various ways through food and firewood, burning stuff and so on, but also ancient sunlight in the form of fossil fuels, tens of millions of years worth of sunlight that was captured a long time ago. And now we're burning all of that stuff in just, you know, a matter of Decades, really, maybe two, three hundred years, when all is said and done. So th- that, of course, is a huge story in the book: how how human society has changed so much because of fossil fuels.
0: Now, the human species had, according to your book, four characteristics that allowed them to survive: uh, tool making ability, language, social complexity and the ability to harness energy sources, resources. Um, Other species possess one, occasionally possess one or more of these characteristics, but none all four. Do you want to briefly state how these four characteristics feed into one another for for maximum resilience on the part of humans?
1: Right, yeah. Yeah, this these four things became kind of a synergetic uh, package that propelled human evolution, uh not just human physical evolution, but primarily human social evolution forward uh very, very rapidly. Of course, there were there was tool usage. Uh now some other animals, as you say, <clears throat> have gotten reasonably good at using simple tools. Uh some Caledonian crows and, and, uh, and, and others. I mean, raccoons wash their food. And so there, there are lots of examples one could point to. But once we started not just using tools, but making tools, shaping tools, not, and not just stone tools, but tools made out of you know, wood and fiber and, and uh, animal bone and all sorts of things, and then added language to that. See, language enabled us to teach others how to make and use tools. So that enabled us to make far more complex tools than would have been the case if it hadn't been for language. Um, and then add to that fire, which enabled us to make again much more complex tools. We could we could uh, we could make glues and harden. Uh, things and, and, and use tools to, to carry and manage fire. Uh, all of these things, uh, again, uh, work together synergetically. Uh, social complexity generally comes a, a little bit later in the story. I mean, there, there was some specialization prior to the emergence of agriculture and, and cities but generally speaking, in human societies, that there was a you know a, a prestige came from having particular skills or knowledge. Uh, nobody could lord it over the rest of the of the band. Uh, but that that changes uh, in social evolution with the advent of grain agriculture and the first cities and states. And that happens about seven thousand years ago.
0: Mm. Um, you know, we we weren't the only humanoid species on the planet. You know, there there were several others with whom we shared the planet. The Neanderthal, for right. example, were once plentiful at, at the same time as our species. But today, Homo sapiens are the only ones left. You know, I mean, what what's an example of how the four those four qualities helped us to to survive or or else helped us at the expense of the other human human humanid species
1: right well there's there's no certain answer to that question as you say there were there were several probably at least uh, six and maybe as many as as a dozen other human species that existed um, you know let's say fifty thousand years ago. But Homo sapiens, our branch of the, of the lineage, survived and the others didn't. You know, Homo erectus, Neanderthal, uh, the others no longer to be found. There's some of their genes are still with us because we interbred with them. But the, the um, fully fledged members of those species are, are nowhere to be found. Why is that? How did we outcompete them? Well, could, could it be because uh, we made better tools? Well there, What happened it seemingly is around 50,000 years ago, Homo sapiens made some kind of leap forward because our, our tools started getting a lot more sophisticated around that time. And the conjecture among the paleoanthropologists who are you know studying this problem and discussing it among, among themselves, The general consensus seems to be that language was probably the key. Um, Neanderthals probably had some uh, ability to speak some language, but their their ability to communicate symbolically was limited compared to uh, the ability of Homo sapiens. We haven't found any cave paintings, for example, that uh, show Neanderthal having the ability to communicate visually and symbolically the way that uh, sapiens were around the same time. So, language would have been a huge, huge resource for Homo sapiens, enabling them to plan and strategize. Imagining, you know, if you wanted to attack another group, being able to strategize and say, well, you go here. And when I give the signal, then you do that. That, that could give a group a, a, a huge advantage over, over another that didn't have this linguistic ability.
0: You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Joined us, uh, I'm speaking with uh, Richard Heinberg. Uh, he is the author of the book uh, Power uh, Limits
1: and Prospects for Human Survival.
0: <laughs> now, uh, I wanted to talk about. Uh, how human beings continued to dominate and and improve their power. They took the form of kingdoms, especially as as agriculture became dominant. Why why does that structure prevail as opposed to, say, communes where where everyone is equal?
1: Right. Well, it probably had a lot to do with warfare. And uh, here, a a lot of, of, of really good theoretical work has been done by uh, Peter Turchin, who um, he, he started out as an insect ecologist and solved a whole bunch of theoretical problems in that field and decided to apply his his same methodology, statistical uh, analysis methodology to human social evolution. And so he and his colleagues, because he, he works with a, uh, a, a large group of um, other specialists. Um, What they did was gather together a database, a huge database of uh, information, quantifiable information about human societies over the last several thousand years, Uh, all of them agrarian and post agrarian human societies. Okay, so using this database, they were able to find, um, you know, what uh, uh, the moments of human social evolution cycles. Of uh, development and decay in human societies, and trace you know what were the the factors that seem to be associated with these these shifts, and in in terms of the the development of um, king, early kingdoms and then empires, it's pretty clear that warfare was a big motivator. I mean, it it, it drove. The not only the consolidation of societies, the the uh, uh, the growth of societies, because bigger societies could fund bigger armies that were more formidable against you know surrounding groups and so on, and they they also tended to make them more hierarchical because if you have a command and control structure, a vertical um, pyramidal hierarchy that's also more formidable. Now, over the long term, it tends to make the society more vulnerable to collapse, because within a a vertical power structure, you know, the people at the top of the pyramid set up the rules of the society so that more and more wealth and control will flow up the, the, the levels of the pyramid over time. And you know, there's an, there's an expiry date on that kind of thing, because, you know, once the people at the bottom of the pyramid have no power, they don't have enough wealth to, to sustain themselves, they have nothing to lose by rebelling uh, or, or just leaving. And that's, that's what predictably tends to happen in a cyclical way, you know, in, over about a 300-year period uh, or, or cycle in agrarian societies, they tend to go through this process of of growth and accumulation and the wealthy elite enrich themselves and then eventually the whole thing tends to come apart.
0: Okay. Now, when the fossil fuel sector was, was exploited uh, beginning uh, a little over 200 years ago, um, yeah, you know, it's just an explosion of of power, and it resulted in the advancement uh, and, and the uh, you know, rapid an acceleration uh, of evolution, as it were. Uh, was this simply a matter of giving you know, dramatically more power to humans, or, or was there something linked with our, our relationship to it and each other?
1: Yeah, well, it fossil fuels enabled, um growth of power in all forms for human beings. And and we're talking about uh, quantitatively power on a a scale vastly greater than we had access to previously. Um, Over the last 200 years, since 1820, um, the, the energy used by human beings on a per capita basis has grown eight times over, 800%. So the average person on the planet today Uses eight times as much energy as people in 1820. But of course, that's per capita. And the number of capitas has also grown by about the same amount, 800%. So there are eight times as many people, about 8 billion of us today, versus about 1 billion in 1820. So this is just, you know, that's only 200 years, just an eye blink in terms of you know, even social evolution, much less biological evolution. So there's ne- never been anything like this before. And again, it's because, you know, so much energy had been concentrated in these, these fuels that we were able to liberate so easily the, the amount of energy that was needed in order to dig for oil and pump it out of the ground was was trivial compared to the amount of energy contained in the petroleum that, that we got. And so that you know that changed uh, our social organization you know it it used to be in 1820 we needed you know 80% of the population working at farming in order to produce a surplus for you know the people who worked in cities as soldiers and accountants and you know whatever Um, But with industrial agriculture, fossil-fueled agriculture, now we can produce so much food that it only takes maybe 2% of the population farming to produce enough food for everybody else. So what's happened in the interim, people have left the farm, they uh, no longer are living rurally, more than half the world's people for the first time ever live in cities. And so this is the, the explosion of the middle class and occupations uh, held by people in the middle classes. People have jobs now. In 1820, very few people worked for somebody else. Most most people either were slaves or or they were landowners, maybe small landowners who just worked for themselves or, or big landowners who had slaves, you know, but... Um, now, most people have jobs and they expect that that's, that's how they're going to, to survive and make their way in the world. You know, it's, we, we tend to think of this as just, you know, the natural way of things, but it's so, so different from how things were even uh, 100 or 200 years ago. And it's all down to fossil fuels. This huge influx of energy changed social relations, changed technology, changed the economy. Uh, changed how we think about the world, our expectations of how we're going to live, all of it. Mm.
0: Well, in the present situation, we find ourselves facing climate change, diminishing food resources, uh, water scarcity, as well as facing the, uh, the threat of a, a w- of a nuclear war. Um, and as it stands, about 150 to 200 species a day are going extinct. So our greatest strength seems to be our greatest weakness, you know? But what existing abilities, what what existing powers do we have at our disposal that could possibly serve to to counteract this path towards destruction?
1: Right. Well, this this really gets to the the central message of the book. Um, Chapter um, 5 of the book is called Overpowered, and my argument there is that Power is good, you know, without power, you can't do anything. So power, you know, power is great, but it's possible to have too much of a good thing. And that's what fossil fuels have done for us. They've made us so powerful um, physically and socially in, in comparison with the natural world that we are undermining our own viability as a species. And we're threatening the rest of nature that is our basic support system. So what can we do about that? Is there some way to change our relationship with power? Well, theoretically, there there is. Um, And in chapter six, I call that the optimum power principle. And that's sort of a play on words because there's what biologists call the maximum power principle, which is a, a principle in biological evolution, that the species or the member of a species that's able to to uh, gain and use the most power for purposes of getting food and repro- pre- reproduction is going to survive. Duh. It's, you know, simple common sense. But um, if that's all, if that's the only way evolution works, then we're kind of done for because, you know, we human beings are power hungry, or power seeking organisms like all organisms. And if we found a source of power that is that is threatening our own survival. Then there's, in principle, there's nothing we can do about it because we're just the the you know the 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 tip of the arrow of evolution's arrow, and uh, maybe evolution has designed us as as a creature to be to self destruct. Well, what's the what's the argument against that? I, I think there is one, which is again the optimum power principle. The observation that. Throughout evolution, there have been ways of checking too much power in, in individual cells uh, and organisms. There's homeostasis, a power balancing act it's, that happens on a, a momentary basis. Within ecosystems, there are power balancing mechanisms like predator-prey relationships. Now, that doesn't mean that power doesn't ever get out of balance. It does. Uh, typically, again, in cyclical ways, but it rebalances itself over time. In human societies, the same thing, you know, when we were hunters and gatherers, we we deliberately discouraged bullies from taking over because that was, you know, that was not in in the long-term interest of of the group. Um, Later, human, after bullies did take over with the, with the, uh, uh, the origin of state societies, these hierarchical uh, kingship societies that we've been living with for the past seven thousand years. After that happened, then human societies looked for ways to check that overempowerment by way of, uh, you know, democracy and social movements and so on. Going all back through history for thousands of years, and we're still doing that. We we tax rich people at higher rates. We find ways of supplementing the wealth and income of really poor people so that they don't just fall off the table altogether, whether it's Social Security or Medicare or uh, educational uh, supplements or or, or whatever. So we're accustomed to to checking over empowerment. So the question, of course, then is well, if we're capable of doing that, then why, why do we have climate change? Why do we have all these other problems? Well, the answer, I think, is that fossil fuels gave us so much power so fast that we nurtured the illusion that there are no limits, that we human beings are so smart that we're destined to go to the stars, you know, this, this whole Star Trek mythology that, that we, you know, our, our, our intellects are, 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 are boundless. And we will figure out ways to, to feed everybody and to find energy sources beyond fossil fuels that will enable continuous, unlimited growth in, of, of economies far into the future. We'll, we'll colonize other planets and stars and before you know it, we'll be, you know, the the masters of the universe. Well, sorry, but that's just not how things are. We live on a limited planet and the energy sources available to us are limited. And nature has a limited capacity to absorb our wastes and to support human numbers. And if we don't get within those limits uh, in a conscious and deliberate way, then nature will balance out these power relationships in her own way, which will unfortunately, probably be pretty brutal for the humans who are alive.
0: Well, you, you, I guess one kind of optimistic point you mentioned, uh, human slavery. It, it was a part of societies on the upswing uh, going way, way back. And you note that this was true right up until the fossil fuel age. It was mainly that reality more than the abolition movement. Although the, the abolition movement, there was definitely a movement there, no question that was good. Right. But the the, the 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 these new machines that that come along, industrialization show up, certainly helped. You know, and uh, I, I'm just wondering, could a a similar development be in the works today, where where some novel act of technology might enable eliminate energy so, so we can do with less is, is that a possibility you could answer?
1: Yeah um, I don't think I don't think it's likely that we'll come across another energy source that will do for us what fossil fuels did. And um, a pessimistic way of looking at this at the situation is well if coal and other fossil fuels did away with slavery because fuel-fed machines were just so much more profitable to operate than, you know, uh, groups of human slaves, then if fossil fuels go away, either because we're tackling climate change or because their fossil fuels are simply depleting away from us as we, as we extract and burn them, then are we headed back to a new era of slavery? Well, it's possible. Um, I I would certainly hope not, and there are certainly ways of organizing ourselves to to avoid that. Um, if we but if we go back to a kind of um, agrarian society where most of our energy is coming to us by way of field crops, grain crops that can be stored and taxed. Um, well, you know, if you look back in history, those kinds of societies were were pretty nasty toward each other and pretty brutal toward the people at the bottom of the social pyramid. I wouldn't want to go back to that. Um, now, the uh, uh, some folks have been thinking about this for a while. Uh, the or- originators of permaculture, um, David Holmgren, is is one. Uh, um, who, you know, they, they were looking at, at this back in the 1970s. And David uh, has, has told me in conversation that one of the factors that led them to the design of the permaculture principles and the permaculture movement was the idea that, you know, once we move away from fossil fuels, we're going to have to feed ourselves differently from industrial agriculture. From a, from a social standpoint, from a humanitarian standpoint, what would be the best way of doing that Well, it wouldn't be farming grain crops, it would be gardening. Because prior to uh, the development of agriculture, we we were already domesticating uh, food species, animals, and plant uh, species. And we were doing so in the context of uh, what anthropologists call simple and complex horticulture, horticulture being gardening as opposed to agriculture, which is field crops, okay? And horticultural societies, from an anthropological perspective, have very different characteristics from agriculture or, or agrarian societies. Horticultural societies tend to be more matrifocal and matrilineal. They they often are uh, quite violent uh, with each other. They they are warlike, and depending on the situations, uh, some places more so than others. Um, but. Um, the level of social organization is typically typically simpler and more egalitarian, and uh, these are these are societies where you know they they typically give away or destroy capital rather than the, rather than uh, uh, accumulating it to the point where you know you have uh, again a, a single rich person at the head of the whole. Uh, organization and everybody else just kowtowing to them. So the whole idea of permaculture is to go back to horticulture, back to gardening. And I think actually that that would be the ideal human future from everything I've seen. And uh, and so teaching permaculture, learning permaculture, finding the most ecologically balanced and the most efficient ways of feeding ourselves and the people around us without You know, fields of grain crops and 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 traction animals and all of that plows that destroy the soil and so on. But with gardening that can be maintained on a permanent basis that builds soil rather than destroying it and so on, all of this seems to me to be the way forward.
0: In case you just joined us, we're speaking with Richard Heinberg. He's a writer, he's an author, he's a senior fellow in residence of the Post Carbon Institute, and uh, of course he's well-traveled. I wonder if you can talk about the state of peak oil and gas today. It was a major topic for you uh, 15 years ago, I guess it still is, but it didn't hit our society the way we thought it would. I mean, was it, was it principally the power of hydraulic fracturing that offset peaking uh, oil?
1: Yeah, it, it largely was. I mean, uh, and I, I did not foresee that this would come along. You know, I go back and read stuff I, that I wrote in, you know, 2003, 2005. And most of the analysts that I was following at that time were, were expecting a peak in world oil production around 2005 to 2010. And obviously that didn't happen. And the reason it didn't happen is largely because the world turned toward unconventional sources of oil, principally fracking for tight oil in the U S uh, Canadian tar sands and some ultra deep water oil and a few other places and, and new ways of, of producing conventional oil so that the older oil fields would last longer as, as they have done. So here we are in 2021, how do things look well? Um, the, the, uh, the unconventional oil sources, uh, require a lot of investment continent for, for tight oil in the U S they require drilling, drilling, drilling. Um, uh, and it's not, it's just not profitable. It requires so much investment that now the, the global energy industry is facing a crisis of underinvestment. Now, um, you step back from that and you say, "Well, why would suddenly there be, you know, lack of investment?" It's the reason really is that the the, the oil that's left is more costly to extract. This is not your granddaddy's oil business. You know, um, we have extracted oil and other hydrocarbons using the low-hanging fruit principle. So we went after the easy, cheap stuff first, and now. You know, it, the easy, cheap stuff is, is mostly gone. So what's left requires higher rates of investment. The overall energy return on investment for society is declining. Now, we talked about that in the peak oil movement, you know, 10, 15 years ago. We understood some of these principles. We, we got the one thing we got wrong was the date uh, when oil, global oil production would peak. Well, sorry about that, but there was a lot that we got right in that discussion. And I think the the rest of, you know, energy commentators and and even climate uh, policymakers and so on could still learn a lot from that discussion about depletion, about energy, about energy sources, about energy return on energy and energy investment. And uh, and that information is still out there, and I think you know we're we will return to that discussion over the next few months and years because we're entering a new energy crisis. World oil production seems to have hit its peak in November 2018, and and now it's just a discussion discussion about whether you know will the oil companies invest enough in upstream production so that we don't have, you know, a a crisis ahead. And the general consensus is, yeah, maybe not. Maybe we're really in for it. So we'll see.
0: Yeah, I guess the ER, energy return on energy investment isn't like what it used to be Um, (laughs) today. In looking today, we see natural gas in Europe increasing in price and, and this right. is mostly due to Russia, I think. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. Is the issue of peak gas an issue now uh, for Europe or, or is Russia just being greedy in, in its desire to secure maximum profits if this Nord Stream 2 pipeline avoiding Ukraine is an issue?
1: Right. Yeah. Over the short term, it is it is mostly, you know, geopolitical issues and and uh, Russia, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, natural gas is likely to peak this decade also. I mean, um, it's not infinite in supply. The, The huge supplies that have come on stream in the U.S. in the last 10 years or so, again, were the result of fracking from tight reservoirs that require high rates of drilling, high rates of investment, and so on. That can't go on forever. Same thing with coal. I mean, there's a lot of coal in the ground, but we've extracted it using the low-hanging fruit principle. And guess what? It's getting harder to get uh, new sources of of coal. Uh, China's coal is uh, production has either peaked or is in the process of peaking uh, this decade. And when China goes, the world goes, because uh, China is the world's largest coal producer, despite not having the world's largest uh, resources at at the start of the Industrial Revolution. But Britain has extracted basically all of its commercial coal. The U.S. is a, a declining coal producer, uh, Australia is a coal exporter, but that's only because it has very low domestic demand. Its uh, coal resources are smaller than those of, of China, the U.S., and and a couple of other countries, Russia. So um, we're, we're hitting peak fossil fuels basically this decade, uh, one way or another. <laughs> and if we don't have a, a plan B, then it's going to be a, a uh, a, a tough ride down
0: well into the immediate future i i'm wondering what your view is in terms of, of impacts of uh uh you know that will quickly or or you know in in short order place uh, extreme uh hesitation on our uh on, on our uh, way of life, I mean, is it peak oil? Is it peak natural gas? Is it peak uranium, or or, or some other force that's uh, maybe not very plentiful that will be having its uh, its influence on our society as it becomes diminished?
1: Yeah, I I can't give you that because it's too, it's too the system is too complex. There are too many moving parts. I think the the you know the energy crisis this winter with natural gas and possibly oil also. Uh, high coal prices in China. this is going to uh, upset things and how how the global energy system resets itself after this we'll see you know it's it's going to be a, a, um, a, a I, I think we're going to have an interesting winter let's me let me put it that way.
0: Yeah okay and uh, I, I just uh, maybe to, to kind of close up the whole discussion I mean the fact is that power, is addictive, isn't it? I mean, the automobile yeah. industry was developed uh, absent popular demand at first, and then the roads and so on were built to accommodate it. And, and now cars are are virtually indispensable. Can humankind release themselves from that lust for power?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it's going to be difficult. It's going to be a power struggle. That's I think that's the best way to understand the 21st century. It will be a power struggle. Um, between humanity and the limits on its power, and between parts of humanity that are currently overempowered and other segments of humanity that are not going to like the idea. I mean, just young. Look at young people. You know, they they're coming along at a time when it's clear that their future is going to be severely compromised and they look at people in my generation the baby boomers and generation x and and they see people who used up all of these resources and had a relatively easy life in comparison with what they're facing you know are they just going to take this and say oh well that's fine you know we'll just adjust and adapt or, or are they going to get angry <laughs> i i think the latter is 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 very likely and it's not going to be pretty you know i'm not talking about you know, young people who are college graduates and who are, you know thinking systemically and reasonably about all of this. I'm talking about young people who don't have jobs and don't have prospects and maybe are not very well educated and have access to guns. You know this could go uh, this could go pear shaped in uh, in a hundred different ways and very quickly. So, you know, the the, the best case scenario is those of us with power find ways to share it. And humanity finds ways to limit its power in a um, a fair and measured way. Rationing, for example, would be a really, really good thing to get, you know, to start experimenting with. Energy rationing. This winter, let's experiment with energy rationing i'm not expecting it's going to happen but it would be the smart thing to do
0: okay richard heinberg it's really been a treat having you on the show thank you so much for your uh, your education and your uh, your overwhelming sense of uh, sort of hope um we really appreciated <laughs> having you on the show
1: well thank you michael it's been a, a, a real joy talking to you
0: yes as you as well Richard Heinberg is a senior fellow-in-residence of the Post Carbon Institute. Uh, he's an author. And his uh, recent book, Power Limits and Prospects for Human Survival, is from New Society, is available now. Go to power.postcarbon.org. That's it for this week. Next week, we'll be bringing together progressive voices with skeptical views on the playing out at the upcoming UN Climate Conference in Glasgow. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Centre for Research on Globalisation and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Creek, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca.